things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever, wants their, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, As we sit in this moment of silence, we imagine and wonder uh, what you might say to us um, through this teaching, through this story that was preserved so that we might know you and what you have done through Jesus. And we come into this room, different stations of life. different experiences. Some of us have received news this week that has been traumatizing and sent ripple effects throughout one family system or another. And we don't even know, you know, it just makes us numb. We don't even know what to do, what to ask, how to pray probably have more questions than we have answers. And while one person sits with that kind of place, someone right in front of them or behind them sits with a kind of a joy and a promise to life that hasn't been there in a long time. Someone sits with, um, with questions about you that they've never really felt before. Suddenly this is a season of doubts and questions and, and someone else right next to them sits um, beginning to believe for the first time in the death and resurrection of Jesus or that God might be real. And from all these different places, um, we're entrusting that you are a God. And if you are a God, that means you can handle it. You can handle all the myriad experiences and places that, we, that our journeys have taken us. In fact, we begin to imagine that you have brought us through these things, that you have been with us, that you have seen them happen. You have allowed certain things to happen for our good. And so now we pray that as we bring the real things of life into this place, and as we look square on to our frailties, our unfinished business, the things we still haven't apologized for, the things we still haven't forgiven. As we bring all of that here this morning, we find that you are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and you meet us in our mess, that even though we're more broken than we care to admit, that you 
have made it that we're also, in Christ, more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And so we can stop proving ourselves to the world and to you because you have already validated us in Christ. You have given us what really belongs to your son, Jesus, the status of being your beloved children. May we marvel at that gospel and may you speak to us now through your Holy Spirit, through that gospel of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book that, we, that your leaders have read, and some of you picked up a copy and read it as well, it's called All Saints, the story of how a dying Tennessee church was revived through the in, this influx of Burmese uh, Christians, refugees. Um, if, I don't know how many of you read this book, but it's a fa fascinating story. As this church experience, experiences like a split over some argument, and now we're left with a church and a new pastor comes in, or I guess he's called a priest in the Episcopal um, tradition. And, and as they begin this journey, it just nothing looks good. Finances don't look good. Um, just, you know, how many people are there? It's not looking good. It's not looking like a place that new people are going to come and stick and stay. And what's this journey going to look like? And, and then all of a sudden, you know, almost, it's almost miraculous that this, this Burmese community, they're called the Karin people is their nationality. They, they're looking for an Episcopal church. They, you know, they're refugees. And, and, and so they kind of come in and they, they talk to the pastor. And do, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe these things? If so, we want to be a part of this church, you know, and, and so, so what ensues is just this sense of you're constantly going, no way. <laughs> At every turn, um, could this really happen? I mean, it, could this kind of story really happen? And, and, and just the ways you get a sense that all the prayers and hopes of this church, um, against all odds, they're, they're answered in ways far beyond you, you, what you would have expected or for sure wouldn't have predicted it. So just this, as you walk through, you're like, wow, God's hand is really on this journey. Who could argue with that? And the book gets to this point where um, this pastor, Michael, um, has this conversation with somebody. I mean, lo and behold, not everybody actually sees it the way that I'm as I'm reading it. I'm thinking, this is clearly, God is at work. This is great, fantastic. So there's this interaction of someone who's just not seeing it the same way. So this woman comes to Michael to express her disappointment in the direction all saints had taken. I had such high hopes for us here when you and AMA came for our congregation and what we would become. What kind of hopes do you mean, Michael asked. I was hoping to see these pews filled again, to have a vibrant Sunday school and outreach into our community, for our church to be something in this town again like it used to be. Michael stared at her in disbelief. Just that Sunday, attendance had been well over 100. The Sunday school was now so full they needed more classroom space. He voiced his disbelief out loud. What are you talking about? Our attendance is now higher than ever. The pews are full. The Sunday school is overflowing with kids. I didn't mean with those people. She snapped back instantly. It was only then, the book goes on to say, at that, it was only at that moment that Michael realized how completely at cross purposes their conversation was. To this woman, the Corinne simply weren't real church members. 
adventures in missing the point, right? In completely missing what's right in front of you when God is at work. And that's kind of like this story that was just read where Jesus is explaining what the Christian church would later see as the most essential thing to understand about Jesus and his journey and his presence on earth. As he, as he begins to describe his suffering and death and resurrection. And Peter stands up, you know, Peter's going to be the one, sort of the most clear, well-known leader of the church moving forward after Jesus. And Peter stands up and basically gives it to Jesus as to why he is out to lunch on this idea of suffering, death, and resurrection. And he, no way we are not going that way. And so Jesus gets a little bit feisty in response. And as some people would say it, Jesus puts Peter on blast. Yeah, some of you have heard this terminology, apparently. He's on blast. Peter's on blast. Peter's been you know, called out for what he's doing right in front of everyone else. And I don't know, I think we can, luckily we can all relate to being in a situation where we, we think we just have this crystal clear vision of an injustice that's happening, of an argument in which our side is the right way, or in a way we've been treated or someone else has been treated, or the way something's supposed to be run. And we can, in the heat of the moment, um, I think probably all of us have been there, where we kind of get caught up in this, and we've got kind of blinders on maybe, and we've that short-sighted sense of justice, and we engage and we say things, and later on we kind of look at it after everything's the dust has settled and things have cooled off, and maybe we've actually listened a little bit at this point, and we kind of go, oh, how could I have been, how could I have been missing, like, what was really actually all going on in that circumstance? I was so short-sighted. Or even not just I, I only saw some of it, but I wasn't actually seeing it correctly at all. We can all relate to Peter. Like Peter, we see what we want to see. There's a sense in which this is a passage about our need for spiritual optometry, for our vision to be corrected so that we can actually see better. And for some reason, we're always kind of taking you know, that the glass is off and reverting back to our blurry, imprecise uh, vision that kind of leads us and we say, oh, over here is where, where I need to go. And this is, this is just one of those passages that reminds us of how far off we can get it and we can get things. In John Steinbeck's um, wonderful novel, East of Eden, there's a character called Kathy Ames, or Kate, and she is the personification of just what humans are capable of in the wrong direction. She's just, this, she's just portrayed as this horrible person capable of horrible things. Just to give you an idea, she finds her parents as a teenager too restrictive. And so you know, as teenagers do, she burns down the house while they're in it and runs away. You know. This is Kate. This is Kathy Ames in the book. Among other diabolical things that she does throughout the entire book, this is, this is Kathy Ames. Um, but unfortunately, despite the fact that just almost everyone can see it and look into her and see just almost like, it, it's like, is this woman pure evil? You know, it's like everyone just can see it. Adam, this other central character in the book, he falls in love with her, and he can't see it. I mean, just... 
It doesn't matter what she does. He just can't seem to see it. This is how the book puts it. Burned in his mind was an image of beauty and tenderness. A sweet and holy girl, precious beyond thinking, clean and loving. And that image, of Kath, and that image was Kathy to her husband. They end up getting married. That image was Kathy to her husband, and nothing Kathy did or said could warp Adam's Kathy. And that is a picture of Peter as well in this passage, of just needing to be pointed out, needing to be put on blast. And in the book, of, um, in the book East of Edom, eventually, um, this character, this wise character, Samuel ha- Hamilton, considers putting Adam on blast. And in this really colorful language, this is how it's described. Adam satirically said, It is my duty to take this thing of yours and kick it in the face and then raise it up and spread slime on it thick enough to blot out its dangerous light. He says, I should hold it up to you much covered and show you its dirt and danger. I should warn you to look closer until you can see how ugly it really is. He kind of hints at it, but he doesn't fully say what he's meaning to say. And even with all that Samuel Hamilton says to him, Adam just kind of says, what are you talking about? (laughs) I don't get it. Jesus puts Peter on blast. And he's quite vehement. You can see he is pointed. He is firm. He is direct with Peter about this. And I would, I would want to emphasize that the vehemence of Jesus is not haphazard. It's not a burst of Jesus' emotion. It's not just random or accidental. It's very calculated. And this is why I would say that. Because right here, Peter's reaction gives the teachable moment for the church, for all who would look to Jesus to find a way. This is the teachable moment, universal for anyone who would look to follow Jesus' ways. Because Peter voices the, the number one impulse that keeps us, whether you're a Christian or not, from living from the transformative gospel that Jesus brought. Peter's impulse. And that impulse is Jesus. Teach me the way of strength. Instead of give your life for me because I'm too weak to save mine. Our impulse is Jesus, be my Olympian role model and win the gold. Don't be my suffering servant. Jesus, please don't lay your, please don't lay your life down for me because then I'd have to admit that I'm a spiritual mess. How do you like your Jesus? Jesus, uh, Peter wants a strong Jesus, a victorious Jesus who will lead Peter into the ways of the victorious. It's kind of like that scene in Talladega Nights um, at our session yesterday. (laughs) Pastor Paul mentioned that, you know, the prayer scene, and then it erupts. It kind of devolves into how do you, what kind of Jesus do you like? Do you like the baby Jesus or do you? And that the one character, um, oh man, it just cracks me up every time. He says, I like my Jesus to be on stage singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner. He's got giant angel's wings. That's crazy. What? And so the main character, if you haven't seen that scene, the main character 
is praying, but he keeps praying to baby Jesus. And he says, I like baby Jesus the best. It's crazy. Um, I'm really sorry. That was, and this is getting way off track. But that's a little bit like how we are, right? We have our favorite, and Peter comes, and he has his image. He has, this is what I, Jesus, this is what I think of you as. This is how I want you to lead. This is the way I want to go. And so here we are in the season of Lent, the season of introspection, the season of looking at ourselves, the season of finding how do we actually really need Jesus way more than we expect. And in this season, the, the wise calendar of, of seasonal scripture passages laid out for us bring us to this passage so that Peter can lead us in exploring our mess and explore our limitations. The best Christian examples that we might have are examples like Peter who lay out their mess and show how they saw Jesus the wrong way and were taking up the victorious Jesus card only to realize how far off that was. And Christian churches throughout history are made up of wise spiritual practitioners who when they get to the end of their rope and when they got to the end of their rope, they were caught by Jesus who said, I'll take it from here. And that's the story they have to tell rather than the story of Olympic conquering and victory. Of lofty deeds and perfect doctrine. So Jesus know, or Peter knows how pervasive this getting it wrong issue is going to become. And so as the dust settles, as Peter eventually sees for sure that Jesus did go into suffering and the cross and rose from the dead... And as the, that message begins to spread, Peter, as we know, as we talked about when we started into this season where we looked at the Gospel of Mark, this is Peter's Gospel. The history of the church says Mark was writing down the stories, the, the version of Jesus that Peter was passing on. So what we have here is Peter passing on his own story of himself being put on blast. The gift to the Christian church for 2,000 years would be this church leader who says, you want to know how far all of you can get it wrong? Look at me. You want to know how far off you can get looking at Jesus and what you expect from him and how you expect things are now going to work? Let me just tell you about how I got it wrong, how I saw it wrong, how I couldn't see things for what they were. There's this, I don't know, you've probably heard of this experiment. There's this experiment, I think it was done in the late 90s, by um, Daniel Simmons and Christopher Chabri. And it was a, it's a psychological experiment. So if you're one of the people in the experiment, they take you in and they say, watch this video and tell us at the end, tell us, we want you to count how many times the white team with white shirts on passes the ball to each other. And this video comes on and there's, uh, people in white shirts and black shirts, and they're kind of all a ball of people run, you know, kind of circling around each other like globetrotters and the Washington generals. You know, they're just kind of going around each other, and there's balls kind of bopping around. So it's a little bit confusing, but that's what you're told to do. And so people watch it, and they watch it, and they watch it. Well, right in the middle of the experiment, somebody in a gorilla suit walks in right into the middle of the group, turns to the camera, beats, beats their chest, and then walks off the screen. So here's how it goes. Then you get done watching the video and the experimenter says, how many times did the white team pass the ball? And, and, and the person says, 15. And the experimenter says, very good, that's exactly right. D 
did you see the gorilla? And half of the people say, no. What? Gorilla? <laughs> this, is, this is this story for us today. Did you, have you, did you see the gorilla? <laughs> and all of us need this. All of us need, during the season of Lent, a season to stop and wonder whether you're exploring the Christian faith or whether this has been your thing, your gig, your story for your whole life, maybe even. We need to stop and say, what have I been zeroing in on? And have I perhaps missed something that's right in front of me the whole time? Let's pray. Our God of grace. We're all tempted to pursue the life and the path of self-preservation. But your words to Peter, your words to your early disciples, and your words now to us through Peter's retelling of the story are that you were on a path that was going to just completely change the world, starting with one heart at a time, one reconciling one broken person to you at a time through your sacrificial work. And may we see that for what it is. May we see our deep need for it. And then begin to understand and wonder how we might lose our life to save it. Those troubling words that the passage continued with, that we hardly even, we didn't even begin to explore those. And how if we know how you lost your life to save ours, we, under, we begin to understand and crack the code around how we lose our lives to save them as well. Continue through your Holy Spirit to lead us on that path. In Jesus' name, amen.